You know, a couple of weeks back, two weeks from today, we asked about New Year's resolutions on New Year's Day, and, and somebody came up to me and said, my resolution is never to do New Year's resolutions. But, but, but I want to share this. this is, uh, I borrow this from John Ortberg. He's got a podcast called Habits, and he's trying to instill real simple habits, habits that are doable and that they're winnable, and they're not, you don't get so frustrated. And, and this, is, this is the habit that he's challenged that my wife and I um, subscribe to his podcast, and it's a great podcast. And if you're interested, I'll tell you about it or give you the, the, the website. But he, he, um, first thing, before you get out of bed or while you're getting out of bed, he wants you to repeat Psalm 118, 24. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. One more time. And some of you folks know it. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's, it's in your, if you've got a sermon outline that's on the back of that, I'm going to use it as a challenge. But his challenge to us is do something. I mean, if you're wanting to get into God's word, if you're wanting to connect with God better, this takes 10 seconds. I, on your way, as you swing your legs out of the bed, before you look at your phone, before you get a cup of coffee, just say that. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day God's, God's made, not us, not you. This is the day the Lord has made. And then smile. And you may have to add, depending on what you're going through in life, you may have to add somehow. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it somehow. Because some of us, some of us are going through the, the dark valley. I mean, it's, it's real. It's real. And just add that caveat somehow. And then, I, then John challenges you to smile. Just say, okay. And then invite God into your day. Right at the beginning, invite God. God, let's partner in how this is going to play out. So that's my, that's my homework for you. We'll, we'll talk about it at the end of, at the, end of the message. But uh, tomorrow is Martin Luther King um, Jr.'s birthday we celebrate. 55 years ago, this, this April, you know, he was killed, assassinated. Um, 55 years ago, we still remember some of the things that he said. He was only 39 years old when he was killed. Um, but th- this, this quote, it, it ties into the message today. Darkness cannot cast out darkness. Only light can. Hate cannot cast out hate. Only love can. One more time. Darkness cannot cast out darkness. Only light can. Hate cannot cast out hate. Only love can. If you've been around with us for a while, we've been calling just our our journey through Mark's gospel, Love Lives Here. Um, God's calling ordinary people to do extraordinary things. That's my prayer for us this day. Um, Let me jump into the message. Um, Anybody here ever go for a second opinion from a doctor? Um, I, I shared with some of you guys a few months back, I'd hurt my shoulder a while back, and I had been seeing a doctor, a surgeon, since last June. I went to see him last June. He gave me a really cool steroid shot. Then I went back in October to get another really cool shot. I think he missed my shoulder because it never, it never helped. Um, but when I, when I went to see him in October, he said, hey, there's only one way to fix your shoulder. You're going to need surgery. So I, I didn't like that opinion, didn't like that option so much. So I went to see another doctor, another surgeon. <laughs> Um, and he told me some similar things, but he had me do an MRI, and, and it shows that I've got a torn rotator cuff. It's only really a partial share, but when I say torn rotor ta- rotator cuff, it sounds like I'm an athlete, like I've got some, you know, I've, I, I've did it, like playing a really, like, aggressive sport. Um, so, the, so the doctor suggested six weeks of physical therapy and some big boy doses of Aleve to see if that helps, eliminate some of the pain, and then we'll see about surgery. 
And some of you guys have been asking about my shoulder. It doesn't really hurt unless I move it a certain way or, or I sleep. I go to bed. I sleep. And, and, you know, I could live with it if I didn't have to sleep. But it, it's one of those things that, that just wakes, like a baby wakes me up every two hours at night um, because of the pain. So end of February, um, six weeks from now, I, I head back to the surgeon and we'll see. And if he recommends surgery, most of you folks would probably just say, if you were me, okay, okay, okay. Just enough goofing around, let's bite the bullet, just do it. Um, but me, but me, if he recommends surgery, um, I'm going to go for one more opinion, a third opinion, and hopefully he will land where I want him to land or her, um, because I I want them to be able to say this. Hey, kid, we got some WD-40 spray. You just put that on your shoulders. You'll be just as good. You'll be as good as new in the morning. Um, um, That would be easiest, wouldn't it? Um, Just might not be the best. In the gospel story I want to share this morning or unpack this morning, there's definitely some opinions or options that are floating around about who this Jesus is. Um, Tough tough opinions, discouraging opinions, disheartening opinions that Jesus hears. In all Jesus' humanness, he hears them. In his his heart of hearts, in his human heart, he hears them, and they're they're hurtful. Um, and, And the first opinion comes from his family. Then a second opinion comes from the religious leaders of the day. But, but both punch, I believe, Jesus right in the gut. His heart, his human heart. Because these opinions are demeaning and disheartening to Jesus as he starts, just begins to start to roll out his ministry. And I believe we need a third opinion or a third option. And that's where I would like to see if the gospel leads us that way. Um, let's see where this story takes us, where this story takes you and me. Before we go forward, I want to go backwards. Um, I want us to review some things we heard in the, last, in, in, the, in the last story. Last Sunday, if you were here, we looked at, we're in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3. If you've not been around for a while, just, it's real easy. Just read the first three chapters, and then you're caught up. Um, but last Sunday, if you were here, we looked at Jesus huddling up with a calling together, seemingly for the first time, the 12 apostles. The, the disciples Jesus chose, the ones he handpicked to mentor, to teach, to walk with him. If you guys could turn to Mark's gospel, chapter 3, if you have a Bible, that's really cool, but we'll have it up on the screen. We'll, it's in your sermon notes if you've got a sermon outline. And we'll first look at verse 13. We looked at that last week, but then we'll skip down to the story I want to focus on today, down at verse 20. But here's that, that verse, verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. Quick summary of last week's message. Jesus went to the mountains, handpicked these 12 guys to come help him, and they all said yes. Nothing special about these guys, at least first glance, but one thing they all seem to have is a trust or a faith in Jesus because they all said yes. And we've been fussing with this, and this is a theme I'd like to keep going until we get to, to, to Lent. But God's call... God's call on ordinary people, just like us. God's call on ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And Mother Teresa helped uh, helped, helped me better understand what extraordinary means. Mother Teresa's got this quote, and I love this. God doesn't call all of of us to do, let me get the quote first. Uh, Not all of us can do great things, but all of us can do small things with great love. Not all of us can do great things, but all of us can do small things with great love. Not our love, but God's love flowing in us and through us to those we encounter. Love lives here. Love in the name of Christ. Love, Inc. 
Um, Let's look at this week's story. Mark chapter 3, starting with verse 20. And we'll fuss with it verse by verse today. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. They escaped up to the mountains, this, the, going back to, to verse 13. Jesus and his 12 hand-picked guys, they go up to the mountains, and I imagine they have this sweet mountaintop retreat. And Jesus tells them, tells them, you're my guys. They're all psyched. Then the minute they get back down, most, most folks believe they're in Capernaum, Jesus' second home, uh, his adopted hometown for his ministry, right there along the lake, Sea of Galilee, up in the northwest corner. They come to hang out at this house. And many folks believe it's Peter or Andrew's house. They've been there before using it as sort of a base. Maybe they're thinking, maybe the guys, the 12, were thinking this is just going to be a real sweet, intimate time, small group, just the 12 of us plus Jesus, have a quiet little Bible study, and shoot fire Martha. Folks hear about, folks hear that Jesus is back. Word gets out, there's a ton of folks there. Again, in the house. It seems to happen over and over again in Mark's gospel. Jesus shows up and there's a crowd says they can't even turn around. So many folks crowded into this house. It's crazy. It's chaos. So much so they can't even eat. They can't make their way to the buffet table. My words, not God's words. And, and I'm probably projecting here a bit, but one of my goals in life is to be um, a wealth, look like and feel like a well-fed homeless person. And uh, my wife says, I'm getting there. I'm, I'm, I'm close. <laughs> but anyone thinking this whole following Jesus was going to be a piece of cake Cake imagery used intentionally. At this point, they're saying, not so much. They can't even eat. Ever been so busy, so preoccupied, helping yourself or helping others, you can't, couldn't even eat? It's never, ever, never actually happened to me, but, but um, I know it, I know it happens. Folks forgetting to eat or being so busy, they couldn't eat. And for me, this, for me, this might be the first time the 12, the apostles, begin to think this following Jesus. It's not going to be all fun and games. The picture in the How to Be an Apostle brochure, folks singing Kumbaya around the campfire, not so much. Second thoughts begin settling in about this call to follow Jesus. Meanwhile, word gets back to Jesus' family. We'll look at this text in a second. Gets back to his mom, his brothers, his sisters. Most of them probably living up, up, still living up north in Nazareth, Jesus' home before he started his ministry. We don't really know how the word spreads, but we can imagine how it happens, how word spreads around. Friends of the family have, have, have seen what's going on with Jesus down in Capernaum, and they take word back to his family. They're remembering Jesus, sweet Jesus, they remember little carpenter boy Jesus with his pretend hammer. He's all grown up now. And the story maybe goes something like this. Mary, 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 Mary. It's a little crazy down there in Capernaum with your son Jesus. Lots of crazy stories. Lots of them about Jesus, about miracles, about driving out demons and healing people, lepers and cripples and such. My humble opinion, Mary, this is just my opinion. As your friend, longtime friend, it's a little, it's Jesus, your son, is, he's a little over the top. You may have to reel Jesus in a bit. He's become somewhat of a religious fanatic. I don't think it's right. Next verse, verse 21. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. 
After hearing the stories, Jesus' family has decided Jesus is heading for some kind of disaster, some type of self-destruction, and they need to come down there, and they need to come to Capernaum and bring him back home, or at least talk some sense into him. If you're taking notes, and I just encourage you to take notes, because if you're like me, if you don't write it down, it it never happened. But point number one, um, opinion number one, Jesus is out of his mind. Jesus is crazy. Jesus is out of his mind. He's crazy. Ever been told you're out of your mind or you're crazy, especially if you're trying to follow, trying to follow the will of God? Last week, if you guys were here, we had the Mayeni family, Mkolisi and Erica. They have this really cool, amazing ministry that they do in Swaziland in Africa. Um, and I asked Erica this week, has anybody ever told you what you and your husband, what you try to do with your three kids, has anybody ever told you that it's just crazy? And she said, yes, we always have, pe-, and I quote this, yes, we always have people telling us we are crazy for marrying someone is so di- who is so different, for starting a nonprofit from scratch, for moving to Africa, for moving to the mission field with small children, for dreaming big about the farm and camp, Umkolisi Her husband has a cousin who is well-educated and wealthy and can't at all understand why we would live in rural Swaziland instead of staying in America. And both Eric and I agreed it's um, only because of God, only because of God's calling on ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Ever been told you're out of your mind or you're crazy? Next verse, next verse, on the heels of Jesus' family thinking Jesus is crazy, that Jesus has lost it. We need to reel him in. Jesus gets hit again by a different group. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebul, Satan, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. Apparently, Jesus has struck a nerve with these teachers of the law. The religious leaders of the day, and this is not the local B team, this is the A team from Jerusalem. They've heard word too. Different words, maybe from the Pharisees. Back a few stories, there was a healing of this man who had a shriveled hand by Jesus in the synagogue on the Sabbath. The Pharisees seemingly threatened by Jesus, or maybe trying to draw a hard line, hey, here's the law, nothing, no work happens on the Sabbath. These Pharisees threatened by Jesus, new way of thinking. The Pharisees are telling anyone who will listen, this Jesus, and he's trouble. He's a rule breaker. Can't be trusted. He needs to be eliminated, shut down. And the story says it seems so crazy to us where we stand. An over-the-top reaction. But the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the top of the top, the ones who really believe God is working through them, they begin to plot how they might take Jesus down. They plot, the text says, the plot, they plot to kill him. And this is only chapter 3. Folks who, who, who say the gospel story is boring, they don't read the gospel. Then about this, then about this. When we're scared or threatened by someone, what's a way to dismiss them? This is, make this personal. What's a way that we often will dismiss someone when we're scared or threatened or hurting? What do we often do to someone who has power or talent or good looks or money or even strong faith? We rationalize why they have it and we don't, don't we? It's a way we try to make ourselves feel better about ourselves relative to them. We can undermine them. 
We can because we're broken and hurting and scared people. We can start throwing all kinds of mistruths or half-truths or lies. That happened to Jesus. That ever happened to you? It's happened to me. These teachers of the law, they know Jesus has power, and he also has a following. Tons of people are wanting to be with Jesus. Jesus has got this big following. He's a big deal. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they used to be the big deal until Jesus came along. A way to dismiss that power, a way to pull folks back to your side of the story, start throwing mud around. Even if it's not true, some will Some will stick. Some will stick. We're not sure if these teachers of the law from Jerusalem have even met Jesus before. They seem to just show up. Apparently they've heard the rumors and they start throwing mud. They know he has miraculous powers. They know he can drive out demons. And they try to undermine that power by saying he's not who he says he is. He's a fake. He's an imposter. His power comes from Beelzebul. And everyone back in the day would have known that's, that's Satan. What they were saying was that Jesus has power, power to heal. Jesus' power to drive out demons comes from Satan. It's not from God. Point number two, or opinion number two, if you're taking notes. This is what they're saying, the teachers of the law. Jesus is a demon-possessed liar. Jesus is a demon-possessed liar. Opinion number one, he's crazy. Opinion number two, Jesus is a demon-possessed liar. He's a fake. He's a phony. What's interesting about these religious guys saying Jesus is the devil, Jesus is Satan, he's the prince of demons, the head of demons. When Jesus would drive out demons, it was the demons that recognized who Jesus was. If you remember back, first chapter of Mark, the demons driven out by, by Jesus. I know who you are. Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One, the Son of God. And Jesus would not allow the demons to speak because they understood who Jesus was. Still not sure if anybody else gets it except the demons. Next verse is verse 23 and following. So Jesus called them, the teachers of the law, over to him. He's not afraid to confront them. Jesus began to speak to them in parables or stories. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end will come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, whenever Jesus says these words, there's something important that Jesus wants us to hear. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they ever. People can be forgiven all of their sins and every slander they ever, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. Jesus, he explained, Jesus explains why he said that. Jesus, Jesus said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit, like the demons. And there's a bunch to unpack here. Um, one of the challenges of going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through, uh, through gospel, there's, um, you can't really skip over the hard verses. And this is a tough verse to, to wrestle with, to, to land on. There's a part of me when I say this part of the story, I just, when I saw this part of the story, I was just going to concede and just say, uncle, um, 
let's just talk about the Broncos finally winning a game last Sunday. And, and uh, my wife pointed out to me last Sunday, it was the first time in a long time I didn't say anything about the Broncos. So next time the Broncos play, next September, mm's the word. Um, <laughs> but just some of the highlights of this section we just read, this, this scripture. To plant some seeds, maybe have conversation on the way home. Jesus, again, Jesus is not afraid to confront these guys who are obviously against him. He calls them over to himself. Maybe these teachers of the law were being passive-aggressive. or Maybe they were just kind of hanging out around the edges, whispering their lies, their slander against Jesus. To the folks, the teachers of the law were speaking to the folks who were obviously there to see Jesus. Jesus says to them, hey, 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 come here, let's talk. No emails, no texting, no phone call messages. Let's do it face to face. And Jesus begins to teach them in parables or short stories. Jesus begins to tell stories of folks, his supporters, his adversaries, could at least relate to. They may not understand them, but the thing about stories, the thing about parables, folks remember them. They force us to wrestle with the meaning because, because sometimes a given text, especially a parable, can have multiple meanings depending on what we're going through in our, in our lives, depending on the context of our lives. And here's the parables. How can Satan, Jesus talking to them, to the teachers of the law, how can, how can Satan drive out Satan? doesn't make sense. How can Satan drive out Satan, Jesus is saying. Remember, the teachers of the law are saying that Jesus is Satan, and Jesus is saying, well, shoot, if I'm Satan, how can I be driving out Satan? How can I be driving out the demons, the evil spirits, the impure spirits? He reminded them the accusations, they don't make sense. Verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided itself, that house cannot stand. That Martin Luther King quote, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can. Verse 26, and if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. And we all know the end of Satan, the end of evil in our world, the end of evil in our lives. That would be a wonderful thing. It just hasn't happened yet. I can't wait Probably not going to happen until Jesus comes back, or Jesus comes back for us. The future hope of that from Revelation, the future hope of heaven, no more tears, no more death, no more mourning or crying, no more pain. Verse 27, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Most folks way smarter than me believe the strong man in this verse is Satan, and Satan's house is our broken world where Satan lives and rules. Jesus has come to take back the world from sin and death and brokenness. But this take back is nowhere complete. Not until Satan is gone, not until all the demons are gone. Okay, those are the parables. And then these next couple, three verses. Here's Jesus speaking directly. No mincing of words here. Jesus speaking directly to the teachers of the law. I believe Jesus is speaking to us too. Truly I tell you, Jesus speaking, truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. I'll stop there. First part of this sentence, first part of this text, truly I tell you, Jesus is saying, listen up, take note from this point going forward. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins 
all their mistakes and every slander or lie or blasphemy that they utter or speak or think. This is is God's grace. This This is why Jesus came to show us what love looks like, why we pronounce that love lives here as we try to live that out. When there is confession, when there is repentance, no sin is beyond God's forgiveness. And I love this thought, and I borrow it from somewhere. When you or I ask God for forgiveness, we are asking God to do what God does best. By the cross of Jesus, you and I are gladly and fully forgiven. But this next part is tough, this verse 29, and it gets misinterpreted all the time. Jesus speaking again, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. The unforgivable sin, the eternal sin. What does that mean? Yesterday we had a a brotherhood breakfast. We had just Bob Pence, former FBI agent, just share some of his stories. And it was just powerful. It was powerful. Talked about just the, 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 the violence in the world these days. And he shared some things with us just to take home, but... What's the unforgettable sin? What's the unforgivable sin? What's the eternal sin? I borrowed this quote from somewhere, from one of my commentaries that I use. This is a quote, but I'm not sure if I understand what it really means to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Uh, at our men's breakfast, um, I asked a few of the guys' tables. I, I shared what I was going to preach on, and I said, I'm not sure if I really understand this, but if you guys could figure it out, write it out on a napkin, give me that after breakfast, I'll use it for my message tomorrow. I got, I got zero napkins, so I'm on my own here. Um, but I borrowed this quote from, from one of the commentaries. This is regarding the unforgivable sin or the eternal sin. It's the deliberate refusal to acknowledge God's power in Christ. An irreversible hardness of the heart, a callousing of the heart. Deliberate, ongoing rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit is blasphemy because it's rejecting God himself. And other folks would say that this, the, this, the unforgivable sin is just denying who God is. Just very simply denying that God is God. I'm not sure if it's that simple. You remember Peter? And he denied, he knew who Jesus was. But then when things went south, he denied even knowing Christ, even knowing Jesus. I'm not sure if that's the unforgivable sin. But a lot of folks land right on that, denying who God is. And then some, some folks will say it's assuming that we are God, that we are the center. Nobody else. We are the, we are the center. We're, the world revolves around us. And not maybe these words, but in their actions, I am God. And maybe some folks would say it's... it's you know, I deserve, whatever I get, I deserve. And, and then some, I deserve more than I get. I, you know, this is, this is not about some higher power. This is about just, you know, the one who dies with the most toys wins. That kind of philosophy. There's a text from St. Paul to the folks in Philippi trying to encourage them. It goes something like this. Continue to work out your salvation Continue to work it out with, with fear and trembling, with holy sweat, some folks would say. For it is God who works within you to will and to act according to his good purpose within you. I 
You know, I think when it comes down to what does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, I'm not exactly sure what it is, but I know what it's not. Some of you know Tom Warren passed away yesterday. Just Tom Warren, for folks who are new, Tom Warren was just one of these folks, he and his wife, his family, they're just, they're just part of this church. They're part of the, just the fabric of this place, just beautiful, beautiful people. And Tom had an accident right after Christmas, broke four, broke four ribs, and then Tom got COVID while he was in ICU of the hospital. And I, I got to be with his family the last couple of days. And, you know, it's always holy ground. It's always powerful. We really thought when they, when they took the breathing tube out of Tom on Friday night that he was going to make it, that he was going to, that he was going to pull around. But then things didn't go so well. And I got a text from Tom's son saying, hey, mom wants you to come. Can you come? It was right after men's breakfast yesterday. And he went over there and it's just, it's just holy, holy place. And I reminded them, man, this is sacred ground right here. And they know that when they take the CPAP machine off Tom, that he's probably going to go be, be with Jesus. And it's just, it was powerful. And th- their hearts were broken. Their hearts were broken. But they were not troubled. They were at peace. And I, I, I shared with them some scripture. John 14, verse 1, Do not, do not, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me, my father's house, there are many rooms. Tom, family, Jesus has prepared a place for Tom. And I quoted an Isaiah text. Uh, Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and, and no one can understand his fathom. Those who hope in the Lord, they will, they will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. Tom is ready to soar. He will run and not grow weary. He will walk and not grow faint. And then we said the Psalm 23. Most every celebration of life service we do in here, I, we share that in some version. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. It's all about surrender. And I may not know what blaspheming the Holy Spirit is, but I know what surrender is. And that's the opposite of blaspheming Holy Spirit. And what I saw in that family, I saw them, I saw them say, I don't like any of this, but Lord, here's my, here's my husband, here's my dad, here's my father-in-law. Verse 30, Jesus said these things because they were saying, the teachers of the law were saying, he has an impure spirit. Jesus was saying this to the teachers of the law because they were saying he had an impure spirit, that, that he was possessed. He, he, he was the demon, and we know this isn't true. Jesus was warning them, warning us, don't go down that road. And I know, I know folks struggle with, maybe, have, I, have I committed the unforgivable sin? Maybe, have I? Have I? I? Yesterday I called Pastor Darrell because I knew he, he, he knows the Warren family from way back. I just shared with them what, what the family was struggling with. And then I asked him, you know, about this text. I asked him about, you know, what about this unforgivable sin? And he counseled me. And I love Daryl. He was a pastor here for 38 years. He, he knows way, 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 way more than, than I will ever. 
But he said, you know, if folks are struggling with that question, if they're struggling with whether they've committed the unforgivable sin, just tell them they haven't. They're wrestling with that. They haven't. John 14, 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe, it, believe in God. Believe also in me, Jesus is saying. You're going to be okay. That's the promise. And point number three, opinion number three, this is the one I would like us to land on, but it's up to you. You know, opinion number one was Jesus is crazy. Opinion number two was that, that he's a demon-possessed liar. But here's opinion number three. Jesus is who he says he is. He's God. He's the Son of God. If any of you guys watched um, football last Sunday, the Buffalo Bills quarterback Josh Allen he shared on public TV after they had won just an exciting game. First game back after DeMar Hamlin had gotten hurt so badly in the Monday night game. He kept saying over and over again, God's real, God's real, God's real. Pray that this third opinion is where we land. And Jesus says who he says he is. Just the last verses I want to fuss with and then, and then we'll do communion. But Jesus' family is coming to get him. And, and Mark uses this technique about, he sandwiches um, this family story and then a family story and then all this stuff about the teachers of the law. And, and I, Mark uses this technique quite a bit, this framing, if you will, just to try to, one story teaching another story. And all of us who have lived more than 10 minutes, we know that we get, our stories get interrupted and sometimes we never come back to the original story we were on, but sometimes we do. And Mark comes back to the original story. Jesus' family coming to get him. They finally arrive in these last verses. They've, they've heard he's crazy. Now they're there to take him home or at least talk some sense into Jesus. Here's the last verses. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Again, they probably came from Nazareth. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call Jesus. A crowd was sitting around Jesus, and they told him, they told Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus has this, has this, I don't know, it seems pretty rough. Who are my mother and my brothers, Jesus asked. If you grew up in the Hess house or one of six kids, if, if, if I ever, hes- if my mom pulls up and says, somebody comes in and says, mom's here, if I ever hesitated, that what would have not been a good day for me, um, Oh man, in our culture, through, through our lens, mom shows up, she's outside. It is really, really rude and arrogant and off-putting if you don't drop everything and, and head outside. But this is Jesus. And he knows why they're here. He knows why mom and brothers are there. Mom's thinking, Mary's thinking, my son, my special son, the one that the angel told me about before Jesus was even born. And the brothers, I mean, Jesus is the big brother. Jesus is half-brother's they're saying, big brother has lost it. We're, we're, here, to save, we're, we're here to save him from himself. And, and my guess, maybe I'm presuming much, but I believe they all love him. But their motives, their motives are right. They're just, they're just misplaced, misplaced zeal, if you will. Verse 34, then Jesus looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here, you guys are my brother, my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever does God's will is my family, is my mother and sister and brother. In my heart of hearts, I want to believe Jesus is standing up at this point, starting to head to the door, 
starting to head outside towards his family, and he reminds those closest to him, those included the apostles he had just called, maybe there were others. Jesus is telling them very clearly, there's, bl- there's blood family, there's those folks outside the door, but then there's spiritual family. And you want to be part of my spiritual family, you've got to follow, got to follow God's calling. Just final thoughts if you're taking notes. It's not about knowledge. It's not how much we know about God. Knowledge is not enough. The religious leaders had that, and they still missed the mark. It's not about just following. Following is not enough. The crowds followed Jesus, but most of them missed the mark. The last point, I pray we land here. It's about hearing and doing, and I add, and accepting the will of God. That brings us into God's family. True relationship with God, with Jesus. That's our mission. Bob Pence yesterday at the Brotherhood Breakfast, he talked about LCR. He called it liquor, but it's not liquor in the gin and tonic form. LCR, love, about why the world has gone into such a a spin. It's about LCR, love and care and respect. I think it's about love and care and respect for each other, love and care and respect for ourselves, love and care and respect for God. And also I put another R in there about relationship with God, relationship with God's people. Last story, it's another Tom Warren story. And I love this story. Two weeks ago today, um, Tom Warren was in ICU because of the broken ribs. He hadn't gotten COVID yet. He got that later on. But Tom was up in ICU. George Dockery, many of you guys know George Dockery. He was rushed to the hospital with just some breathing stuff. And and George and I, Sally Klein-Bierman, Sally Warren, um, we we were in the ER with George. And and, um, Tom Warren is on the fifth floor, ICU room 564. And he tells the nurse, I got to go down there and see my friend. We are family. I need to go down there. I don't care about the tubes. I'm going down to see my friend, George. And they say, no, no, that's not going to happen. And then Tom starts to negotiate. Well, maybe, maybe if, if George is going to get admitted to the hospital, let him be my roommate. Let him be my... <laughs> what, I, what I often get to witness in my role as pastor here is what it means to be family. What it looks like to be family. And we're not talking blood family. We're talking about spiritual family. And you guys teach me over and over again what that looks like as you guys loved on your friend Tom Warren as he went to see Jesus yesterday, as you love on each other through the stuff that happens, you guys continue to amaze me. I want to I I close with just this, this habit challenge. It's the one I started with. Um, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And I just want to twist it a little bit. I want to say this, and, and this is you, each of us, this is your new habit for 2023. When you get up in the morning, before you cup of coffee, before you look at the bad news on your, on your phone, before you, before you really wake up, before you brush your teeth, um, just say this scripture, Psalm 118, 24. But I, I twist it just a little bit. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And some of us will have to say somehow because we're going through Hades and back. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And then force yourself to smile and invite God somehow into your day, into the stuff that you're experiencing. And I, this John Wartburg is doing this, this, um, this podcast on habits. 
And he's saying, you know, beginning of the year, you know, we'll say things like, okay, I'm 20 pounds overweight. I'm going to lose by the 15th of January. I want to be down 20 pounds and be running half marathons. Haven't started running yet. Half, you know, I want to, we, we overcommit, we overshoot. But he's saying, you know, small chunks. You want to get back into God's word. Here's a way. You want to get back into prayer. Here's a way. It takes at most 10 seconds. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And we smile and we say, okay, God, you and me, you and me, let's go, let's enter into this.